Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet. And Edinburgh joined as always by Frank Cagliano, who is back from his various travels. Welcome back, Frank. Thank you, David. Yes, yeah, sorry, we've been away for a few weeks, or I've been away for a few weeks, and we've been delayed, but we haven't recorded for a few yes, weeks. Yes, you had Tartan Day and all the kinds of, of, of travels around the United States that prevented us from recording, but you're back now. Shenanigans and hijinks, David. Exactly. Uh, you know, cavorting with, with billionaire donors on yachts and what have you. That's right. I had to go uh, see my sponsor. <laughs> so, um... Actually, sort of You'll understand why he said that. that so, uh, our topic this uh, week is the uh, debates that are happening at the moment about propriety and ethics in the Supreme Court. Today, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to start a series of hearings on judicial ethics uh, that arose in part after uh, some reports in ProPublica and other places that Justice Clarence Thomas has taken uh, lavish vacations funded by billionaire uh, Republican donor Harlan Crow. Uh, these are both, he had some lavish trips, and he was given, I think, a $19,000 Bible that once belonged to Frederick Douglass, and an enormous photorealistic painting of Crow and uh, Thomas and some of their friends at a lakeside resort, among other various gifts, uh, including like the property that Clarence Thomas's mother lives on, and all other kinds of financial shenanigans that involves uh, Thomas and various other accusations against other members of the Supreme Court, which we may get to. So we thought this would be an opportunity to talk about judicial ethics and and the Supreme Court and the sort of background to the the kerfuffle with Thomas and some other justices. So so David, before we start, yes. I, I want to um, I want to tell a version of a story. Um, that, that, that might be relevant to this discussion, but also pose a question to you. Okay. So the, the story is, I have actually, and, and I can't, uh, we don't have time for me to go into the details, and I shouldn't uh, go into some of them. I've actually met Harlan Crow. You have met Harlan Crow. Did he make a photorealistic painting of you I, with him? He did not. Oh, I obviously bad. didn't make the same impression on him that, that Clarence Thomas does. And, and, and I spent a very pleasant evening with Harlan Crow. Okay. Um, and... and uh, which ended up with him. Or was it just you and him? No, or no, no, no. Okay. It, it, it was it was a, a different kind of. Evening. There was a public event that we were both involved in, in Dallas, and and then there was a dinner afterwards, and then uh, Harlan Crow invited myself and several other people, back to his house to see some of the. Um, historic artifacts that he has collected. Now, when I say back to his house, so, so we went to his home, I did not see the sculpture garden of fallen dictators because it was nighttime and it was actually raining quite heavily. But he took us to his library, and I'm using library kind of advisedly here because on one hand, it was the library of a, of a person, and it was, it was a personal library. On the other, this is much more... A museum piece. Or an archive. Yes, I mean, okay. it's actually like an archive. You could go there and do research. He has... Uh, in fact, there's an archivist on staff. He has his his library isn't just a bunch of books in a room. It's actually quite a, okay. a, a substantial collection of historic um, documents and artifacts, much of which has been reported on. Yes. So he we uh, that evening we were shown his copy of um, the Emancipation Proclamation, for example. So that was that was we did not see anything that was related to any of the more controversial material in his collection, I hasten to add that evening. But, but my point being, my sense that I got about Harlan Crow that night, and it, we, I don't know him, and I don't know him. Uh, I can't There's say that I know him. There's not any follow-up invitations no, 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 to go on his yacht. But, but it was a perfectly pleasant evening. My sense was that this was 
a slightly conservative individual, perhaps actually more than slightly, more yeah. than slightly uh, with a pretty deep knowledge and interest in history, who certainly subscribes to a kind of Whiggish view about history being the story of liberty unfolding, mm. and that that was really the theme. He clearly admires, um, based on my conversations with him and, and some of the things he showed me, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Winston Churchill. This is uh, both uh, presidents Bush. This is kind of, if you will, mainstream Republican history or, or an interest in history. Um, and it just, I, I offer this uh, not by way of mitigation, simply that was my experience with Harlan Crow. Okay. Uh, That's more experience than I've got. So yes, exactly, said. exactly. Uh, yeah, probably most of our listeners. So. Offline, and if any of our listeners see, us, see me offline, I'm happy to tell them that the, 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 there's, there's an extended version of this story, um, which ends up with me in a bar with a Thomas Jefferson impersonator and an Alexander Hamilton impersonator, but that's a story for another that's day. That's a story for another day. Oh, speaking, speaking of listeners, I, I meant to say this at the beginning. Uh, a shout out to Brittany from Brooklyn, oh. who's a listener, who uh, who I saw when I was in the States, and I, I, I uh, she's, a, she's a listener who greatly admires the show, and so I wanted to uh, make sure I said hello to her and her mother and her dog, all of whom I met at the Tartan Day Parade. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, so, sorry. Sorry about that. So my dog qu- listens to you. Hello <laughs> to the dog. Um, so my question... Question for you, David. Yes. Leaving aside my own experience, limited experience with Harlan Crow, is one of the defenses that's been made of Clarence Thomas mm. and his relationship with Harlan Crow is they're friends, and Supreme Court justices are allowed to have friends, and sometimes friends have different means. You might have friends who've invited you to their summer houses. Or not, not recently, but okay. okay. <laughs> no, no, but so, 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 let, let, I want to, I want to, I think we need to be, try to be fair okay. here. Um, is it too much to just say, okay, look, they're friends. Harlan Crow happens to be a rich guy. He's generous to his friends and he's being generous to his friend, Clarence Thomas. Why is that a problem? Okay. That's so the defense. So here, here's, here's the problem, at least as far as, as my reading of it is. Um, these kinds of gifts were they to be in other parts of the government would have to be reported and approved by a committee. So, for instance, if you were to give a gift, if even as a personal friend to a member of Congress that was more than $250, they have to go to a committee before they accept it and have it be documented and all those kinds of things. Um, and the kinds of gifts, including the $19,000 Bible belonging to Frederick Douglass, you know, that are, that are gifts, that's a lot more than the $250 that Congress as a threshold for their own members. If you're a member of a lower judicial branch, a, a non-Supreme Court member of the judiciary, you'd have to go through all kinds of hoops to accept any kinds of gifts at all for all the obvious reasons that you don't want to have gifts to judges. Um, and the thought that, 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 that they're just friends, which is, is, is a, a fascinating idea, you know, um, it's, if they were like childhood friends that they that, that somehow one had ended up becoming a Supreme Court justice and the other one happened to end up becoming a billionaire, like that's one thing. But but their friendship began when just when Clarence Thomas was on the Supreme Court and Harlan Crow was a billionaire already. So so they they were. This is it's a very that's a. 
category of friendship that seems very different. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. I, I take your point about the about the requirements and, and the yeah. legal requirements for for gift uh, accepting gifts. I think I think that's a very good answer. Um, I will say, you know, you probably don't know, you may not, may or may not mm. know this. The university has a similar policy yeah. on accepting gifts. Um, and, and, you know, when we do overseas visits or we, we host inward visits from uh, colleagues in other institutions internationally, we, we have to be mindful mm -hmm. of this. And so, so I am familiar with that, and that, that makes perfect sense to me. With regard to what, I mean, they appear to have been friends now for decades, because Clarence Thomas has been on the court for decades. I guess I would say, well, so let me... The other night, Bruce Springsteen played a show in Barcelona. Yes. And it was all over social media that he went out to dinner afterwards with a couple of people who showed up at the show, Steven Spielberg and Barack Obama. And so they were all out for dinner together uh, with their wives yes. in Barcelona the other night. And there were social, you know, Twitter was, and social media were, were full of this. Well, who else are you going to meet? I mean, there's a level of, you know, so, so how, how does Clarence Thomas make friends mm -hmm. if it's not with, you know, they're not like us, David. Oh, they I, travel in different well, circles. So, so what, what I'm saying is it's entirely possible. Yeah. Or, or let me ask you, mm. is it possible that they are friends and that this friendship is actually more complicated than Clarence Thomas is acknowledging or Harlan Crow is acknowledging? Mm. But it may not be as nefarious as it seems. That's well, the question. So, you and I are friends. We yes. became friends through work. Well, to be sure. It's, um, and I, my, my answer is in part predicated upon the fact that I, I, I have several judges who are in my family a and, um, you know, who, who take their sort of code of judicial ethics very, very seriously and, are, and sometimes do things that seem kind of inane as a consequence of it uh, because they're so keen on, on, on not appearing to compromise their, their um, ethical obligations as, as jurists. Um, you know, if Clarence Thomas went on vacations with Harlan Crow and paid his own way, that would be one thing. If they say, oh, look, we're, we're both going to wherever, Emmerdale, but, but um, you know, the, the people who have done calculations on these things suggest that it's in the order of, of millions of dollars of worth of, of gifts. You know, and, and I think part of, of what the hearings today are going to be about are not simply... Um, Clarence Thomas, which has obviously generated a lot of, of controversy, but the sort of behavior more broadly of other uh, jurists, uh, Neil Gorsuch accepting large gifts for speaking funds, including one at the Trump International Hotel, um, Alito having various gigs at the uh, Heritage Foundations receiving large amounts of money, Brett Kavanaugh having similar kinds of financial things. Um, and more broadly, I think the question is, does, is the Supreme Court responsible to anybody beyond themselves? Um, and, you know, and, and as part of these hearings, uh, they, uh, Dick Durbin sent a letter to the Chief Justice um, Roberts asking him to testify, and Roberts said basically, no, I'm, I'm not going to testify. It would be improper for me to testify about uh, judicial ethics in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee for separation of powers reasons, um, which I think is an intriguing response. And, and if you look at other things Roberts has said about judicial independence, one of the things he has said, and there's the, the, the court actually issued a letter a couple days ago, where they said basically that the Supreme Court's different than every other court 
that Congress, if they argue, has, has no power to impose any ethical obligations or laws on the court at all. Um, that they voluntarily abide by some laws, but that's by choice, not by um, obligation constitutionally. And their argument is Congress can impose obligations on lesser courts because those are creations of Congress, but the Supreme Court was created by the Constitution and therefore is immune from um, any kind of congressional oversight. Which is a very bold position to take. Uh, when thinking about what these hearings may result in, one of the, the questions in the various members of Congress who proposed imposing codes of ethics on Supreme Court and and Supreme Court may just say, that's nice, but we're not going to do it. And what's the you know, remedy, if any? Well, is it the constitutional remedy impeachment? Uh, well, so, I mean, theoretically, yes. Uh, but in practice, no. In as much as, as you know, the impeachment of Supreme Court justices is extremely rare, and given that you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate, it's just basically not going to happen. Um, you know, uh, so... Yes, there is a remedy, but just not, not one that seems practical at any given point in time. But wouldn't the wouldn't wouldn't a constitutional originalist somebody yes. you know, who yeah. believes that you know, we have to say, well, that's how it's meant to be. It, you know, this is the court. The court is meant to be separate, and therefore, you know, impeachment does exist. Yeah. and you know that's yeah. that's the mechanism. And if if you can't muster two thirds majority to remove somebody from the court. You can't, and that's well, as it should be. So, so my, I guess my response to that is, is to two things. I mean, one is that you know, the, the originalists didn't envision the court being what the court is now, right? The court has evolved and become much more powerful in profound ways than anything that any of the, you know, if you look at the Federalist Papers, Hamilton said, this is going to be the weakest branch of the government you really don't need to worry about. Um, you know, the, 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 the potential for the courts to become tyrannical is, is, Hamilton says, basically zero. But given the power the Supreme Court has today in terms of both judicial you know, review, which is something that, that isn't explicitly in the Constitution the Supreme Court's claim for itself, and in terms of you know, the fundamental social and political issues being decided, policy being decided by the Supreme Court today, you know, is in a very different place than anything that the originalists at the founders or whatever they want to call these people would have envisioned is, is you know, they're all, it's a different court. Yeah, it should be said that uh, the Supreme Court is the least fleshed out part of the Constitution and certainly received the least consideration during the summer of 1787. Mm. They were kind of tired by the end of the summer and sort of said, well, we'll sort that out later. <laughs> sort and that out the, later. the Judiciary Act of 1791 mm. really is the one that kind of starts to put flesh on the bones. And it's not until 1803 with the Marbury versus Madison decision that the court asserts the right of judicial review. So, so the court's authority is mm -hmm. fair, both the, and more importantly in the context of this discussion, the limits on the court's authority are not that explicit in the Constitution in part because it, if, if one goes, if you want to be an originalist mm -hmm. and you look at the document that was produced in the summer of 1787, it's the least... Um, fleshed out bit of the Constitution. Well, the other thing about the court in the 19th century is that for much of it, it was a lousy job. And, you know, we think of the court now as being sort of this amazing job that people really want to have because of this lifetime appointment and all this power. 
There were tons of people in the 19th century who got asked to be on the court who said, nah, nah, I don't really want to do that. They had to ride the circuit. Well, they had to ride the circuit, which, which for the gist of it is, is that half the year they would be in Washington doing the Supreme Court thing, but the other half of the year, just as the Supreme Court, we each had a, a district that they had to go and be basically the Circuit Court of Appeals with other justices um, where there was a separate uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Which meant a lot of time in a on a horse, going around and hearing cases in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so it was a difficult and and, and um, not particularly pleasant job uh, until until the early part of the twentieth century. Um, you know, and, and so the court is a very different place, profoundly, uh, both in terms of the experience of the justices and in terms of its power than it was two hundred years ago. Um, I mean, the intriguing thing about the you know the getting justices off the court is this constitution says they will serve you know for you know for good behavior which has always been sort of interpreted until they die or retire um, but there's also been lots of a history of some really badly behaved judges on the Supreme Court yeah so so David I want you to rehearse the judges behaving badly but before we do that yes. so th there is an impeachment case from my period which is Samuel Chase in 1804 who was behaving badly he he did behave badly um, he seems he he was one of John Adams's midnight appointees correct I, I believe so yes um, I think that's right. uh, so Adams packed the courts as he was on his way out of the out of office um, in the in the uh, late winter of 1801 and Chase was one of, he was an arch-federalist. He was an alcoholic, I think, if memory serves. Yes. yes. Um, and he's impeached in 1804. But yeah, his impeachment, and he was really partisan on the court. Oh, he was I mean, explicitly partisan. I mean, he would often miss the court to go campaign for John Adams, which, you know, seems like an interesting set of priorities in terms of, of, a, of a justice. Um, he, you know, would be... Hypercritical uh, of his political opponents from the court, but also sort of let off his political allies. But I mean, he, he was seen as being an explicitly partisan justice. And you're right, he was impeached. That is to say, the House found him, uh, you know, sort of arraigned him, as, as you will. But he was let off the hook by the Senate. Yes, I mean, if you've listened to previous episodes when we talked about impeachment, impeachment doesn't mean removal. Right. Uh, it's one step in the process. And so you would think in this case, you know, should he have been removed? Almost definitely, right? And had he been removed mm -hmm. back in 1804, yeah. um, then precedent would have been set, a precedent would have been set, and precedent's incredibly important in, mm -hmm. in, in legal theory. Um, an important precedent would have been set, so the failure to remove Chase is actually quite important, an important part of his story. I think that's right, because there's all a number of justices in the two centuries to follow who were... Did not behave well. Yeah, so David, you, you, you did the homework on this. Okay. Justice is behaving badly, yeah, but David's so just, okay. <laughs> uh, Well, there's a lot of it, people. Give us I the low lights. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a couple of, of, of particularly egregious ones. Um, one is Justice uh, Stephen Field, who was appointed in, in 1863, so right in the middle of the Civil War. And the background to this guy, I think he's from Connecticut originally, but he goes out to California during the gold rush. Somehow immediately gets himself elected to become a the judge in California and is a 
bellicose or pugnacious judge in the California Gold Rush at one point he sets up like a whipping post in San Francisco. He says, we don't have a prison, so we'll just have a whipping post. Why not? He has carrying guns with him in the courtroom. He's that kind of guy. He gets appointed to the Supreme Court when they add a 10th justice in the middle of the Civil War. Why are they adding a 10th justice? Well, part of the reason why they're adding a 10th justice is part of the job of the Supreme Court is to ride the circuit, as we just mentioned. And there's a new 10th circuit, and the 10th circuit is in basically the West Coast, which meant that a judge had to go all the way out to the West Coast to, to hear those cases uh, on circuit uh, for half the year, which was a pain in the ass before the Transcontinental Railroad. You had to go and you had to take a ship all the way through to Panama. It was a pain, you know, it was not a job people particularly wanted. Uh, and Lincoln appointed him, he, for, partially because he was from California, but partially because he was a Unionist Democrat, and then that was politically feasible. But he also pointed him because Leland Stanford, the railroad magnate, said, this is the guy I want on the Supreme Court. It's really important to me that this guy is on the Supreme Court. And he basically becomes the, um, the, 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 the justice uh, for the Central Pacific Railroad, right? He becomes an advocate for big business because he's being paid both uh, explicitly and implicitly by big businesses to be a justice. David, I don't like your tone. Corporations are people too. He's the guy. <laughs> he's the guy who said that. The reason why corporations are people too is because he said in an opinion what they meant in the Fourteenth Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment was trying to say that African Americans are people too. He said actually no. What they really meant was also that corporations are people too, and, and that whole line of his jurisprudence comes from Field, um, which is. He may basically made up whole cloth. That's not in the debates on the 14th Amendment. That, that was his sort of imposition. Um, and, and, you know, other justices said, like, you really can't do this. And he said, I can do whatever the hell I want because I'm a Supreme Court justice. And there's very little, even justices themselves can't really oversee themselves. He stays on the court uh, long after he, he develops senility. He's clearly not able to function as a judge for several years, but he stays on the court because he wants to. Uh, and then uh, in the last few years of his life, he gets appointed to be a, on the Board of Trustees of Stanford University by his old patron. Um, not because he's offering anything to that board other than his name uh, as sort of a reward for a lifetime of service to railroad companies. So that's probably pretty bad behavior, but he's not uh, nearly as bad uh, as James McReynolds, um, who I think is arguably the there's lots of really bad Supreme Court justices, but I think McReynolds, in terms of bad behavior, is is the worst. Um, he was on the court from 1914 to 41. He was appointed by Woodrow Wilson. Um, he's probably most famous now as being one of the uh, four horsemen, the justices who were opposing the New Deal under President uh, Roosevelt, and then he's actually ends up in his retirement. Um, but there's a couple of things about McReynolds that make him really odious. One, he was really, really lazy. He often didn't read the briefs presented before the court, and then when he would write his own opinions, he would often sort of dash them off in a few hours. So he was just not good at the actual work of governing, of being a justice. The bigger problem with him is he was a bigot. He was on the court with uh, Louis Brandeis, who was, who was Jewish, and he told his clerks, don't have anything to do with Louis Brandeis, don't 
talk to his clerks, don't talk to him. He himself would, would, would refuse to be near Justice Brandeis. In uh, 1924, they, uh, they're supposed to sit next to each other for the portrait for the court. And McReynolds said, no, I'm not having my picture taken next to, to, to Brandeis. No picture this year. Because he didn't want to have his picture taken, taken next to a Jewish man. Uh, the few times when you have women and African-Americans um, arguing in front of the court, uh, he would refuse to sit in the bench. He would just either stand up and, and face the back to the lawyer or leave the room when women or African-Americans uh, were, were blending for the court. So he's an anti-Semitic, racist, sexist bigot. Um, and lazy. And lazy, right? So, you know, that package together. Um, and he tried to stymie the New Deal. So... Um, all these kinds of, of things make him make him pretty bad. The the name that's come actually come up a lot in, in with respect to um, the Clarence Thomas issue uh, is Abe Fortas, who is a fascinating figure, um, who does resign from the court as, as a consequence uh, of, of of some of, of the things he may or may not have done. Do you want to talk about Abe Fortas or so? Okay, I'll do. Um, Fortas is a fascinating guy because he was. By all accounts, brilliant, sort of graduated the top of his class, or near the top of his class at Yale, uh, was politically involved in the 1940s. He befriends um, LBJ during that time. They, they become sort of political allies. As a lawyer, he represented Gideon and Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court case mm-hmm. in 1962 that gives uh, indigent. Um, Defendants' right to counsel. Um, so somebody who is doing sort of good work as a as a lawyer gets appointed to the Supreme Court uh, by LBJ in um, nineteen sixty five. The controversy comes up with with Fortas and the, and the reason uh, why he's been in the news more uh, in the past couple of weeks than he has been in a number of years is that he um, gets nominated by the LBJ to be Earl Warren's replacement when Earl Warren retires in 1968 to be Chief Justice, so to move up from associates to full justice. And, and one of the things that becomes clear during um, these, these confirmation hearings to become Chief Justice is, one, how close Fortas was with LBJ, that even while he's on the Supreme Court, uh, he's still regularly attending White House staff meetings. He's uh, meeting with Johnson. He's helping to write Johnson's speeches, which is kind of weird uh, for anything that a lot of Supreme Court justice does. Um, even pressuring members of Congress about issues about Vietnam and other things. Um, but a few other things come out during the hearings that are, I think, more sort of relevant to the discussion about Thomas. One is that he gave, uh, that Fortas gave, a series of lectures at summer school at American University, which is uh, in D.C. Uh, and he was paid $15,000 to teach, a, I think he gave eight or nine lectures. But that the money didn't come from American University, it came from some uh, high-profile legal donors, some of whom were affiliated with law firms that had business in front of the court. And this was seen as being unethical by some members of the Judiciary Committee, And one member of the, the, the committee, or one member of the Senate, uh, Strom Thurmond, threatened to filibuster and, and sort of end 
this nomination uh, because of this kind of uh, his, what he's seen as being unethical behavior, accepting these this payment of $15,000, which back then was a decent amount of money. Um, I think it was something like 40% of how much he was making as a Supreme Court justice. So it was a, a pretty lush summer gig. Not quite million-dollar holidays, but, you know, um, something. Um, and as a consequence, and now Tom Thurman is threatening to filibuster partially because he doesn't want a Jewish Supreme Court chief justice, but also partially because he doesn't like LBJ and the Great Society and the civil rights bills and what have you. So, so Strom Thurmond has other motivations beyond, above and beyond the specifics of the complaint. Fortas withdraws his, um, or asks Johnson to withdraw his nomination as Chief Justice, and actually the seat doesn't get filled until Nixon takes office a year later. Uh, but then the following year, uh, in 1969, there's another series of scandals about uh, money that he had received from a private foundation, uh, a Wolfson Foundation, whose owner had um, been involved in some, some uh, securities fraud. And so he resigns in 1969 um, in disgrace. Um, the intriguing thing, though, about when he resigns, and I think this is relevant to the discussion today, he resigns in part because... Republicans asked him to resign, but he also resigned in part because Democrats, including um, Walter Mondale, you know, a fairly liberal Democrat, also said, look, this is improper of a Supreme Court justice. You need to resign. And that's one of the things I think that makes this situation different from the moment today. You know, there are Democrats right now who are calling for Clarence Thomas to resign. There are no Republicans doing that. Right, because if Clarence Thomas were to resign... Joe Biden would nominate his successor. Right. So the Supreme Court's always been partisan. We've talked about this mm. in previous episodes, but it is just another front in a partisan culture war that's been, or a partisan war that's manifested itself in all kinds of right. ways right. recently. And, and so there's no criticism coming from his own party. It would be interesting to see if one of the three liberal justices were implicated in any way, how the Democrats would respond right now, whether they, they too would get behind their 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 nominee. Yeah. Or, or their, their their justice. Uh, well it's intriguing that that the you know the letter that, that the the Chief Justice sent back to, to the Judiciary Committee saying he's not going to testify, with that they include he included a letter from all nine of the current justices saying basically we're going to voluntarily abide by some ethical guidelines that apply to other justices, judges, uh, federal judges, uh, but we reject further oversight by Congress. Well, I think they all get to that level. They all think they're special. <laughs> well, I think we should. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but I want to, about the Fortis case, you used an interesting expression he resigned in disgrace mm. so in order to feel disgrace you have to <laughs> you have to acknowledge that i mean there's a recognition that, that one has has failed in some yes, way yeah. um and we don't see that you know clarence thomas you know and uh, for, it seems to me clarence thomas's relationship with harlan crow was not nearly as problematic as clarence thomas's relationship with his wife jenny <laughs> thomas mm. not because because jenny thomas is has been aligned with and quite outspoken about um, 
basically election denialism mm. and, and implicated in January 6th and things like this, and matters that might come directly before the court. Because again, I get, I'm not eager to defend Harlan Crow and, and, and Clarence Thomas here, except by way of playing devil's advocate. Harlan Crow, at least to my knowledge, hasn't yet had any business directly before the court. He's, he directly has not been you know, like named in a case. He has uh, the American Enterprise Institute, I think. He's on the board. Board of that. They have had cases right. before the board. So, okay. And no. there have been other, there's been other but, things. But, but I, I guess my point being, Ginny Thomas, for example, mm. may be directly implicated in matters that come before the court. Right. And, and so so um, I, I think what what's interesting about the Fortis case is that, A, he was... He resigned, so mm -hmm. basically he decided to go in disgrace. Mm -hmm. But also, the the real criticism, the bipartisan criticism, in part arose because he seemed to be directly implicated um, in accepting gifts or money from people who had business before the court. Right. Is that, is that, so so I it's think, a I think slightly right. different. Yeah. And, and he ended up giving the money back, and he, right. he, you know, he, he. I think he tried to. I mean, the intriguing thing about, about the situation now with, 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 with Thomas is, let's imagine a scenario in which, you know, a Supreme Court justice like, actually did accept, like, a bribe. You know, somebody presenting anything for a court. It's very gilded age. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but yep. you know, sure. you, you know, somebody says, here, here's a million dollars for you to decide in this way. You know, what is the remedy, if any, for that? Um, beyond impeachment, which, because of the nature of how impeachment works and how challenging to do and and how what the you know likely you know it, it does that suggest you know something about the credibility of the court and one of the things that's striking right now is is you know if you look at, at Gallup polls confidence in the court right now is at a historically low right. level right that that thirty or forty years ago you know the court was the most respected branch of the government people sort of whether they liked individual justices or liked individual opinions, they had a respect for the court as an institution under, say, Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Um, and, and, and that has seemed to have gone down pretty significantly in, in, in the past five years. Yeah, I mean, let me, let me uh, reverse the position I've taken for, for uh, argument's sake mm -hmm. today and say... Um, it's unlikely that a justice would be bribed because if, a, if you were going to bribe a justice, mm -hmm. you'd do it precisely as Harlan Crow has done it mm -hmm. with, with Clarence Thomas. You, it, 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 you wouldn't give somebody a brown envelope with a million bucks in it. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I think that's right. I mean, there's um, lots of ways of, of shaping their worldview and you know, million dollar trips on a regular basis don't have to do that. Perhaps the question is, mm. what would happen if a Supreme Court justice broke the law? They wouldn't be forced to resign, would they? No. Which is and, yeah, and there's all these questions about about conflicts of interest and whether they have to recuse themselves because I mean there have been cases where um, justices on the Supreme Court have been, if they had been on lower courts, would have had to recuse themselves because of conflicts of interest, um, and and they didn't because and they had rationales for why they don't do that. Um, in that respect, but uh, they do seem to have a, a, in terms of the checks and balances, there seem to be very few 
checks right. or balances. Um, so, David, one one thing that strikes me in all this is, um, you know, we've been subjected to spectacles over the past in recent decades uh, around the confirmation of, of Supreme Court justices, and the two particularly notorious ones, or or um, well, I don't know, the notorious is the right notable cases would be um, the Clarence Thomas hearings oh, three decades ago now, uh, and more recently in the past few years, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, hearings, mm. and, and both were. Um, subjected to some pretty intense questioning for for reasons uh, arising from from uh, uh, accusations about their personal lives. Um, well, in not good behavior, as uh, yeah, yeah, for the good exactly. behavior standard, right? No, 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 that's right. But and we don't need to rehearse this. We've talked about these cases in the past. But what is striking there, or striking to me, in the, you know, or has struck me in the course of this conversation today, is you know, one reason those individuals will subject themselves to that kind of um, humiliation, frankly, in, in some cases, uh, is because they have life tenure and they're not, if they can get over that hurdle and mm -hmm. they put themselves through that, they're then not answerable to anybody. And indeed, that, that process may be one reason why they're so reluctant to submit to oversight because one suspects they're probably a little bit embittered as a result of that. And, and I think some of the recent comments uh, by some of the justices suggest that. Um, you know, I guess the other name I throw in that list of, of, of notable recent confirmation hearings would be Bork's hearing uh, where he got, uh, got rejected but also was interrogated about his, uh, both his, his jurisprudence and his, some of his life choices. Well, and, and um, that's right. And, and the Bork case, to a certain extent, the modern confirmation hearing kind of traces its lineage mm -hmm. back to the, the, the Bork case, I suppose. Uh, and it's one reason why um, uh, candidates and, or nominees now will commit to so little on the public record, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the, the court since that moment is, is that none of the current justices you know, have a, a political background. None of them are, have held elected office, uh, and most of them have actually, before they were on the court, spent some of them relatively little time as judges. So they, they do have very little public record, as opposed to the long history of the court where um, most of the justices in the, you know, before 1980 or so uh, had, had some time in public service in elected office or what have you. And many of them went on to leave the court for, for other kinds of elective offices, um, running for president and other things. So, so it's a very different kind of political worldview for the court. That's right. So the ideal candidate now really is somebody like, uh, if you think about two recent appointees, um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh um, or... Barrett. Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Justice Barrett, whose name escaped me for a second. You, you, what you want is somebody relatively young, whose political affiliations are pretty well defined based mm. on what they, what, you know, who they've clerked for and things like that, but who have no record themselves. So Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh both were sending clear signals to to Donald Trump and his supporters about where they would stand on issues, but they didn't actually have a record to to defend per se they didn't have or much of a record to defend and and to some extent that makes them ideal candidates and and um you know i don't think this is necessarily partisan one can can imagine democrats doing the same thing 
in order to get them through the confirmation process. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. well, I mean, I think we're going to have a conversation as a country about about how one regulates what you know good behavior is. I mean, that, that good behavior standard, which everyone has sort of taken to mean, unless you're impeached, uh, you know, is is a tricky one to sort of suss out what that means. And obviously, it's what good behavior means today may be very different than what it meant in 1787. Uh, Indeed. Indeed. Right. Uh, time for last drops. What you got? Right. Uh, over the weekend, David, I'd, uh, we took some Swedish visitors to the Calvin Grove Museum in Glasgow. Oh, great. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is great. And I haven't been to the Calvin Grove. I mean, it closed a few years ago for a kind of major overhaul, and I hadn't been there since it reopened. And one of the things that's really struck, I mean, it's always been worth a visit. I mean, it's a, it's a really great museum. But they've really done a good job, in my view, of addressing um their links and the or the links of their holdings to imperialism and slavery in a quite explicit way uh hmm. they're, they're not hiding it in any way and in fact there are big panels as you come in saying this is a museum of empire and what does that mean and so on and, and there's a very interesting panel where they question where they have definitions of things like um, imperialism colonialism racism and so on but i'll just read you one of the panels so it goes to a it, it's a um it accompany it's next to a portrait uh, of, a, of a couple of the Campbells uh, from the Scottish borders painted by Henry Rayburn, of course, the most famous Scottish portraitist of, of the 18th and early 19th centuries. But it, it, they, they've added a panel with a QR code that says the following. Enslavers. In the early 1800s, the Campbells were members of Scotland's social elite, rich and well-connected, owning several properties. They led an affluent life on their, on their estate near Peebles in the Scottish borders. The Campbells also owned a sugar plantation in Grenada and 232 enslaved Africans who, whose forced labor and suffering paid for their privileged lifestyle and for this painting. This painting holds a central position in a gallery about Scottish identity, but there are no paintings depicting black, Asian, and other minoritized people. What does this say about Scottish identity? And it says, find out more about the Campbells by scanning this QR code and get in touch to share your thoughts by emailing. And then there's an email address there. I think it's a really interesting way to deal with this kind of complicated issue about mm. the pro provenance of paintings, but uh, the connection, institutional connections and, and um, the connections of museum collections to uh, unsavory bits of the past. There was another... Um, uh, Kind of sign. There was signage as one in, went one one went into the collection of artifacts from ancient Egypt that basically said quite forthrightly, most of the items in this in this exhibition were obtained and collected by means that today would be illegal or unethical. Huh, <laughs> and, that's and, fascinating. And, yeah, it's it's a really interesting you know. So by being kind of quite forthright about it and asking mm. for feedback, I, I it's a very I mean this is obviously a question questions of DEI are confronting museums around the world, mm. not just in the UK and the US. But it's an it's an interesting approach by the Kelvin Grove, I think, because it's so forthright. And it just says, okay, as the example I just gave you, this is this painting. This is the background to it make of it what you will and asking some interesting questions so i was i was very impressed but also you know as as were my visitors uh, as mm -hmm. were our visitors i should say um when we had a look at this and i think it might it might it might be the best way to do to do things i don't mm -hmm. know but well, I, I know a number of other scottish institutions museums and whatnot are doing similar kinds of, of work and so that's good to hear they're 
they're doing yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, of course, in Glasgow, to some extent, as a city and as a university, has kind of led the way in Scotland on these questions, and I think it, it, that that's born fruit. I mm. mean, it is interesting because we went to. Uh, the next day so we went there on saturday on sunday we happened to go to the scottish national gallery here in edinburgh uh which of course also has paintings by rayburn among others and and there was no such signage yet so the the contrast was quite striking but anyway uh so i i can all i can recommend the kelvin grove anyway uh but but uh, it's very interesting from a kind of uh perspective of historical memory what about you david what's your last drop uh oh i want to recommend um um a story, and, and this is reported in many places, but it's about a scroll from uh, 1865 that was uh, signed by something in the order of 3,000 uh, something uh, recently emancipated people from South Carolina. It's a petition to Congress, uh, and it's on this enormous scroll that is in the Library of Congress um, that has recently been uh, digitized. Uh, it had been a, a scroll that had been in their, their collections for, for many, many years, uh, but had been sort of, no one had really looked at, and uh, they've unrolled this 54-foot uh, long scroll, and and the thing I find fascinating about it, besides that this document that is, is uh, you know, signed by, by thousands and thousands of recently emancipated people, is that they decided the way to transcribe this was to crowdsource it and to have people around the world try to sort of decipher the, the signatures and, and make sense of it. And so uh, I just want to recommend that. I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of crowdsourcing as a, as a model for how to uh, transcribe 19th century documents, um, you know, because that's something the computers are not particularly good at, at least not yet. So, but, uh, but it's an interesting way of, of, you know, the public taking ownership of documents. What's, what, what were they actually petitioning for? Uh, they were petitioning for for voting rights, um, and that was sort of the, the gist of it, and other sort of civil liberties in the aftermath uh, of slavery. I mean, this is right in this context in which uh, slavery is both ended, but South Carolina is starting to pass black codes to to limit the freedoms of of African Americans, and so they are writing their petition to to Congress. And this had ended up in the Justin Morrill Papers, who was a prominent. Um, uh, Republican politician from the 19th century, uh, and uh, but no one had really looked at it for 150 years, and now we've got a transcription of all the names, and that's pretty cool. So, so what was Congress meant to make of a 54 foot scroll? I mean, that's a it, they get lots of petitions. I, you know, I think they probably read the you know if they did read the first page that has the here's what we demand, but then I think it was just some you know it's the thing is taped together these pieces of paper to make it into a you know it wasn't like a scroll like you know biblical scroll it was a basically just a bunch of pieces of paper taped together but uh just a fascinating kind of document and artifact and there's images you can see online of the whole thing uns unfurled on an enormous table in the library of congress um yeah good stuff right until next week frank cheers cheers david The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.